what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halfsies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is historian and champion for social justice, Ibram X. Kendi. And so when I would go around speaking about STEM from the beginning, and I would urge people to adopt more anti-racist ideas that the racial groups are equals, the more people were like, what the heck are you talking about? What do you mean anti-racist? Dr. Kendi is a leading advocate for anti-racism in America. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, flew off the shelves as the Black Lives Matter movement had an impassioned resurgence in 2020. He is using his voice to put an end to racial injustice, and people are listening. Dr. Kendi has a National Book Award and three number one New York Times bestsellers. He was recently named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He has done this all before even turning 40. His newest book, 400 Souls, was co-edited by Dr. Keisha Blaine. It details 400 years of African Americans in a way no book has done before. Today, we speak about activism, self-reflection, and anti-racism. Please enjoy my interview with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for joining me on To Dine For the podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. Of course. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. So normally, we would be dining together, or we would be going to your favorite restaurant to hear the story of where you love and what you love to eat. So I would ask you, in the absence of being able to be together in person, is there a restaurant in Queens, where I know you grew up, that you would take me to that you really love? Wow. So I think Queens is, it's so different now than than it was when when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, but maybe in Boston, um, mm. I think. So I'd probably take you to the Blue Nile, which is a 
an Ethiopian uh, restaurant in uh, in Boston. My wife is a big foodie, and so as a result, she chooses where we go because <laughs> if I if I make a bad choice, then <laughs> you're then up. That, yes, uh, I'm in the doghouse for like forever. So, so Ethiopian's her favorite food. Mm-hmm. And it's the best from what I'm hearing. And I've had it once, uh, you know, Ethiopian restaurant in, in in the city of Boston. So the Blue Nile in Boston, Ethiopian yes. food. Describe the atmosphere. Is it the food, the hospitality, or maybe it is the nod to the Ethiopian culture? I think all of the above. Um, you know, I always appreciate the ambiance of, you know, Ethiopian restaurants, you know, across this country. And then the food, as a as a vegan, um, they they typically have have vegan dishes that are that are quite tasty, and so yeah, all of the above. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. I want to delve right into your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is really how a lot of people came to know who you are and your work. You grew up in Queens, and then at some point in your childhood went to Virginia. Am I correct on this? Yes. Did that transition, moving from Queens, which is truly one of the most diverse places on the planet, to Virginia, how did that shape your childhood and shape your view of race? Well, I I think what my, almost all of my friends in Queens, since I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, Southside Queens, were Black. And when I moved to Virginia, Northern Virginia, Manassas, Virginia, uh, you know, some of my best friends were were white, but not just white, working class whites. And so I, I think in, in Manassas, Virginia, unlike in Queens, I was exposed to working class white folks, um, just as, you know, there were wealthy white folks. And it allowed me to, to, to really see that these folks are just like us. And so if they have more, it's not because they are more. And I think it it gave me an early sort of experiential clarity on, you know, on the problem not being people. Hmm. Do you think it was that move that helped you find a passion for writing and understanding and researching and learning about race? Or, Or I don't want to put words in your mouth. So at what point did you know that you had an interest in the subject matter of what it means to be a black man in America? I think it really started my senior year in high school when I, you know, as I opened How to Be an Anti-Racist, gave a, a pretty important speech in my life for a Martin Luther King oratorical contest. And the reason why that was so critical is because that speech really gave, and I should say the competition and, 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 and pretty much winning um, the competition, gave me the an incredible amount of confidence, academic confidence that I did not have, that I think mm. was 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 critical in me then going on to, to college. But what gave me that confidence was indeed, you know, speaking about racial issues. But I ultimately, when I got to college, I started thinking about going into sports journalism. Mm. And I sort of went out like a boomerang, and then eventually I came on back. <laughs> So you wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist before the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and before the killing of George Floyd. Where did your inspiration for writing that book begin? Let's start there. 
So I, before writing write it, How to Be an Anti-Racist, I wrote Stamp from the Beginning, which is a, a narrative sweeping history of, of racist ideas in America. And I, in the narrative, I contrast those racist ideas with anti-racist ideas. And I specifically do so because throughout history, those who are expressing racist ideas typically were self-identifying in today's terms as not racist. So I couldn't, you know, use that term. And so I used the term anti-racist to contrast them. And so when I would go around speaking about Stan from the beginning, and I would urge people to adopt more anti-racist ideas that the racial groups are equals, the more people were like, what the heck are you talking about? What do you mean anti-racist? You know, I'm not racist. I don't, I don't understand what it means to be anti-racist. How can I be an anti-racist? And people, everyday people, kept asking me that question, which ultimately caused me to write that book. You take a hard look at your own beliefs around race and racism. And I think in doing so, you allow other people to do the same and to kind of question what they believe and why they believe what they believe. What does it mean to be an anti-racist? Well, first, you are indeed trying to be deeply self-reflective and, if necessary, self-critical. Because to be raised in this society is typically to be raised to think that there's something wrong with a particular racial group. Um, or even right. And so in many ways to be anti-racist is to sort of unlearn those ideas and to learn that despite there being ethnic or even cultural or even phenotypic differences, these different racialized groups are equals. And, and so once you see racial equality as to be anti-racist we're striving to, to see, then you look out at society and you see these disparities and inequities. You see Black people dying at higher rates from COVID-19. You, you see Latinx immigrants being demonized. You see Asian Americans being subjected to hate attacks right now. You, mm-hmm. you, you see Native peoples finding that their ancestral land being destroyed by pipelines. You then don't see those people as the problem. You, you, see, you see policies and power as a problem because you, you, you believe the racial groups are equal. So it's, the problem isn't a particular racial group. And then to be anti-racist is obviously to figure out your own personal way to be a part of the struggle against that racism. Hmm. So is it, is it not enough? You know, social media has changed the game so much. You're a little bit younger than me, but um, old enough to remember when we didn't have Facebook and when it wasn't a part of, you know, of, of so much of the discussion. I'm just wondering if someone is actively trying to be an anti-racist, is it enough that they're, as you said, self-aware and, and thoughtful and aware of how they view the world? Is that enough? Or do you feel like to truly be an anti-racist, you too have to be vocal? Oh, I definitely think you have to be be vocal. And it's it certainly is not enough to be aware that someone or something is hurting before you, and then you're not doing nothing, mm-hmm. you know, about it, because you don't think it's your responsibility. And I think every single one of us, we, we all work in institutions or live in communities. And chances are within those communities or institutions, there are racial disparities and inequities. 
chances are there are people in those places who are figuring out how to eliminate those disparities and inequities. And so what that means is we have the opportunity to support those folks. And and to be anti-racist is to do so. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For, the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com slash dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. Isn't it interesting that you wrote this book before the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement? And it came at a time, you know, for such a time as this, you know, this book came into our awareness at a time when so many people were searching to learn more, to become more aware, to become anti-racist or to, to move from non-racist to anti-racist, which I think is your call in your book. What has the past year meant for you, having written that book, having gone through the summer that we just went through? What has the past year meant for you in particular? I, I mentioned earlier about how people were asking me who truly seem to be open to how they can be anti-racist. And that ultimately led me to to write that book. And what's striking about the last year is, you know, as you stated, that there has emerged this critical mass and this critical majority, you know, of, of Americans who recognize racism as a big problem. Indeed, 76% of Americans said as much in June of last year. And, and some of those Americans are then trying to figure out, okay, so then how, what they should they do? What should they be? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people are asking that question, I think that's what sort of led some of them to, to my work and the work of many others. And so that's meant the world to me because that's the, that's the first step, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is recognizing that our nation must be different and we must be different. And then each of us figuring out what type of nation we want to build and what type of person we want to be. Has it been heartening to see so much support for your work across cultures? And do you feel more hopeful than when you were writing this book or less hopeful? So actually, I try not to gain or lose hope based on what's happening in society. I, I try to 
have a more philosophical hope, meaning I, I know that in order to bring about change, we have to believe it's possible. So to me, no matter what's happening in society, I'm going to to be hopeful. It certainly has been heartening to 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 see so many people who seem to be serious about transforming themselves in this country and you know are joining with us who who are already you know seeking to do that or who are already very serious. But at the same time, over the last year, you know, I mentioned that stat in June about 76% of Americans saying racism is a big problem. That declined by double digits by the end of the summer. Mm. There was a pretty significant backlash, which is ongoing, against the idea that racism is a problem. And by the end of the summer, you had many Americans thinking, and this is, you know, you had many Republicans thinking that that the problem were these violent demonstrators. You had many Democrats saying that the problem were these demonstrators calling for the defunding or abolishing the police. And and so this this idea that the demonstrators by in some way were the problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as opposed to what they were demonstrating against, you know, w- was of course also very difficult to hear and see. And 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 so yeah, there's just been all sorts of attacks on 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 those on the clarity that Americans had at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, just as there's been attacks on my work on the 1619 Project on. Uh, critical race theorists on really all of us who are trying to say that, you know what, the problem is is indeed systemic racism. Mm-hmm. You were named as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of 2020. You're currently the director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, a center that you created. Can you talk a little bit about what this means to you and the work that you do there? Well, for me, it's just not enough to write about and research about racism and and urge people to be anti-racist and urge people to study and examine the racial disparities and inequities in their own communities, in their own institutions, figure out the policies and practices that are behind those, change those and make them more equitable. If I'm not doing that myself, if if I'm not building uh, an entity that is doing that type of work and modeling that type of work. And and so for me, it's just, it goes hand in hand with my writing, with my speaking, that, you know, I'm trying to use my platform to really build a center that can guide communities and help communities to eliminate racial inequity and injustice through the power of research. Your newest book is called 400 Souls, and it is a comprehensive book looking back 400 years of African-American history. It is a collaboration. It was collaboratively written. I'd love to kind of hear the inspiration for writing that. And I would imagine that is almost like a syllabus for (laughs) what is taught at the center, right? Yeah, in certain ways. I mean, well, for me, I think it was in 2018 I was thinking of a way to best commemorate the 400th, what we're calling symbolic birthday of of, of Black Americans, which was of course coming in 2019 on August 20th, 2019. And I, I, as a historian, of course, I'm immediately like, well, let's write history. But, you know, one of the things that I immediately thought was oftentimes histories of America, history of, African-America, 
are written by a single person, oftentimes a man. And so if we truly want to commemorate this 400th year, why not bring together a community who not only can write the history, but even make history? Because the book and, and the writers and the stories can sort of stand as a sort of sampling of what Black folks at the 400th year were thinking and remembering. And so, yeah, indeed, we we ended up collaborating and asking Keisha Blaine to, to work with, with me on this edited collection. And we were able to assemble 80 Black writers and ask each of them to write a short essay on five years of, of, of African-American history. And so each of these writers came from different fields, different genres. We had novelists, we had, you know, essayists, we had journalists, we had historians, and it and just made for an incredible sampling, uh, you know, of, 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 of writers. But then we also brought together 10 poets, each of whom wrote poetry on 40 years. So every 40-year section ends with a poem. And, it, and we're just, we've been so excited to see the reception to 400 Souls. It's, mm-hmm. it's just rare that a single volume sweeping history of America, um, you know, is, is, is read by so many people. But, but I think we think it's, it's so exciting to people because they're reading, you know, stories of everyday people. And there's so many uh, great, great, incredible writers in this book. Mainstream narratives are typically crafted by white people to serve white people. How does it feel to uncover the rich but often neglected stories of African-Americans and to reclaim the history as one of the people telling it? I mean, that's part of my my mission, you know, as a, as a scholar, is there's, there's so many stories in the American past and just as in our time that we do not know, and we do not know because we do not value uh, typically those those people, mm-hmm. uh, or we don't feel as if there's something to learn from those people, or there's there's something inspiring from from black people or other groups of people. And so, for me, you know, her history is the ultimate sort of teacher. What is that quote? Sorry to cut you, cut you off, but it's like that quote that says something like. If the lion doesn't tell his story, we always hear the perspective of the hunter. You exactly. know? And and that yeah. goes across every racial line, gender. It's so important to tell stories and to to give people the space and the place to do so, which you have done so beautifully with this book. How does examining the past 400 years help us plan for the next 400 years? So if, if we don't understand why African-Americans and are in the current predicament that they're in. And, 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 and the way in which we don't understand that is because we're not taught the history of Black folks. Even right now, we have a month dedicated to, to teaching Black American history. And you have some parents who are opting their kids out and, and, mm. and somehow imagining that their, their children learning about American history is not good for them. Right. <laughs> right. And I'm saying that to say, you know, some of those kids, if they don't learn it elsewhere, they're, they're going to grow up and not really understanding the world that they're living in, 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 mm-hmm. in, in its completeness. And, and so to me, the, the way we plan for a more free and equitable uh, next 400 years is, is to really take a complete accounting of the inequity and injustices 
um, just as we do the joy, you know, the last 400. When you finish a work of that magnitude, how do you feel? Do you feel like, wow, that was something? And I, or do you already have ideas for your next book? I'm just wondering kind of where you are creatively. Both. I'm certainly, you know, excited always to, to finish a mass. And it took a, a, quite a long time to get to not only identify and, and recruit 90 writers, but to get their pieces in and then to edit all their pieces and all the back and forth, you know, but at the same time, you know, I'm always thinking about the next project. But I think with 400 Souls in particular, possibly more than maybe any other book that I had published, I just really wanted to get this book in people's hands mm-hmm. because in many ways, it's such a different type of book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually there's an incredible work of art on the cover. Mm. And so I just think it's a beautiful book. And, and I think, especially in this very dismal, difficult time, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it will truly move people. And, and, and so when, you, when you're holding something you, you feel will truly move people and bring people joy and even tears and laughter, you know, you, you just are eager to get in their hands. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. And I can see, um, I love how you said the joy, because the poetry, it is art. It is sort of like a symphony of Black voices Mm -hmm. sharing this story and passing it on, right? And passing it on and writing it. It really is an incredible collection and collaboration. in 2018, you were diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. You were, I believe, writing how to be an anti-racist at the time. How did that diagnosis affect you and your urgency to write that book? Did it change your mission in the world because of that diagnosis? Well, I think the biggest, and initially when I was diagnosed, you know, I would have disease that kills 88% of people in in five years, and I was in the middle of writing how to be an anti-racist, my mind was just like, I want to finish this book before I die. Mm. Like, so that's, that was my initial motivating sentence to myself that, you know, you have to continue writing during chemo and, you know, because you need to finish this, you know, before you die. And, And I thought it would be an important contribution to the world. And, and I didn't want to die before I finished it. You are cancer-free, is that correct? Yes. Congratulations. That's wonderful to hear. I I know that your mission is so much bigger than yourself, and that alone can be a pull and, and a goal and a reason. But when you're faced with a diagnosis like that, I would think it would give you, um, and to be able to tackle it and to do what you've been able to do in the next last two to three years um, would give you a renewed sense of of what's possible and um, maybe what what needs to be done in the future. Do you, can you share your vision for the next five to 10 years with your career and what you're interested in? Well, I mean, I think one thing that it certainly inspired me to to realize is that, you know, the impossible is possible. (laughs) And, Mm. you know, my somehow, some way, being able to move past and and potentially free my my body of all that cancer was in many ways a miracle. And mm-hmm. and and the beauty about humanity and the beauty about Americans is indeed that 
we have been able to produce so many miracles and been able to do the impossible so many times. So for me, I think what it does for me, when I think of my own career and even I think of different things I want to do, whether it's possible doesn't really factor in anymore mm. or nearly as much as it used to. It's just- Yeah, because look what you've done. Exactly. <laughs> look, look what you've done. Look what you've accomplished. The books you've written. You're on the Times Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Tell me, what role does faith play in your life? So I think my, my parents are both ministers, Methodist ministers now. They were AME ministers for a long time. And so I think they- they both, I was raised in the church and, you know, I, I certainly developed a sense of spirituality from them. I've been alienated from the church itself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but in terms of personal faith, I mean, it's it's just critical. And I think that personal faith was, was critical in getting me through cancer. What do you do to relax and what do you do to stay creative? So... I think in terms of stay creative, for me, it's just whenever I think of a, an idea, I'm always, I always just write it down and I continue mm-hmm. to mull it over. And so to me, I the ideas are the key to creation. And then I just try to bring as many to fruition as possible. But for me, it's just trying to remain free to think about new ideas is critical. And what I do to relax, um, I drink sangria um, <laughs> each night. I love that. Uh, I love probably, red or white. Uh, so I used to drink red, but I started drinking more white. Yeah, I would. I love this kind of tension because you said you want to feel free to write about the subject matter that matters most to you in sort of an unencumbered way. But yet you also want to have your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on politically in the country. And I would think that would be in some some days very, very stressful and very emotional. So that's why I asked the question about Mm -hmm. finding some outlet to, you know, reconnect with who you are so that you can put more good in the world. Certainly, yeah, it's hard to turn off all the noise when it's time to write. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Dr. Kendi, this has been such a joy. I appreciate your time so much. The book is called 400 Souls and How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'm telling you, if you walk into any bookstore, it's going to smack you in the face. Now that I've said this, if you haven't heard of it already, you got to check it out. I really appreciate your time and for being on To Dine For today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Kate. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 
and 365 day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.